Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. Delighted that you're here. Anybody else delighted to be here this morning? Amen. I'll take that. Hey, you know what's really cool? Um, we've had a few different kids. I know that one belonged to me, but we've had a few different kids that have read scripture over the past couple months. Um, and I only asked one, and then the rest did it at their own initiation. They came up to me and said, hey, can I read scripture too? Isn't that a cool gift that we get to give our kids, that they get to participate in worship? We get to raise them to be a part of this rather than just have them be observers in this. So I think that's a great thing. If any kids want to read scripture, talk to me. We'll get you on the schedule. We'd love to have you. Um, let's turn to Psalm 125 this morning. We just heard it this morning out of the Minecraft Bible, as it turns out. Um, it's a slightly different translation. It's not the Minecraft translation, just to be clear. Uh, I want to look back at verses 4 and 5 as we start, because in Psalm 125, um, the first three verses, you can see it's kind of talking about God and going towards God, but then things change in the way that the address towards God happens in verse 4. You can see instead of talking about going to God, and instead of talking about God, it talks to God, the psalmist does. And so I want to see those words again. You might call that a prayer when we talk to God. Uh, and so the psalmist prays. Verse 4, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. You kind of summarize what's going on there by just saying, may the unjust be dealt with justly by God, and may I be upright in heart and experience your blessing, God. And simply we could put God's blessing would be his presence. But this whole line about, Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. Do you think of yourself as good? Because I think when we read that passage, it's easy to look at that and think, Lord, do good to those who are good. Okay, automatically, I'm in. Other people are out of that verse, but I'm automatically in there, right? And it's, I think we kind of swim in those waters culturally where everything's good, everybody's good. That's kind of the belief out there. And yes, there are bad things and bad people in the world, but they're not me and they're not you. They're other people. So we read a verse like that, and we, I think we have to be critical of ourselves to make sure we understand who we are before the living God, especially if this is a prayer. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. I think if we dig a little deeper, we realize that we are more conflicted in our souls than we realize when it comes to being good. And when it comes to matching up to who God is, who is good. So you can think of it simply as things that maybe uh, people do when they're kids. You know, you've got to get the plate clean and there are things on the plate that you don't like and the dog is around. And so you feed the dog the things you don't like when mom and dad aren't looking, right? You've given the impression of doing the right thing, but you haven't actually done the right thing, have you? You look good, but you actually haven't done a good thing. We can think of it when we get to be adults. Perhaps you're driving along the interstate at a healthy pace that's above the posted speed limit and then you see the police officer sitting there in the median and what do people do you'll see a whole flood of brake lights as people slow down and then when they're past that point what do they do speed up again you've given the impression of doing the right thing but you actually weren't doing the right thing were you 
We can do this a lot in life, and it's easy to look like we're behaving when we aren't. It's easy to look like we're good when we're really far more conflicted inside of ourselves than we are, than we, than we let the appearance show. It's easy to look good even if we're not, basically. Um, as a good example of, of how this works out, uh, I'll use an example from life yesterday for us. It was a little public service announcement. We, uh, you know, we have a, a child that's in a wheelchair most of the time, and so we have a wheelchair accessible van. I didn't realize the importance of those blocked areas in the wheelchair, uh, uh, the handicapped parking spot until we had a need for those. You kind of look at those and you're like, oh, sure, that's probably important. Well, you need those if you got to flip out a little thing. La yesterday, I was out with uh, two of our kids. We were going to something, and it was a full parking lot we drove into, people all over, and of course, people are pulled into those handicapped spots, the one that we need, and then not just the one that we need, there were two of them, not just the one that we needed, but on the lines between the two spots and the one that we needed. And so, fortunately, things moved around. They were both waiting for people to come out, and so we pulled in, we unloaded, and I, I don't recommend going and talking to people when they do this typically, but I did it in this case. And I went over and I said, you know, because that was the actu actual spot we needed where this woman was parked. I said, you know, we actually needed that spot. And people are pulling up that need that spot. That's a handicapped spot you're parked in. She said, oh, I know. I'm just waiting for someone. Okay. Well, people actually need that spot. Could you move? Oh, right. And so she reluctantly moved her car. And that's just the thing. I think when we get to, and that's not to demonize her, but it's just used as an example that sometimes we don't connect the dots, I think, on certain things like that, on our behavior, and, and are we really good or not? When we come to something like this, we need to connect the dots, I think, and be at least critical of ourselves enough before the living God to understand, when it says, be good to those who are good, am I in that category or not? Do I actually line up before the living God as someone who's good or not? As someone who's upright in heart? You see, because I think we undervalue the power of sin and the power of sin that it still has on us. Sin makes you wrong. God makes you right. We want to choose right. God is the one who made us good in the beginning. That goodness has been fractured and broken by sin. And so when we read something like that, it's only God who's going to make us good and upright in heart, ultimately. And I think that's really important to understanding what, what's being said here and to understanding our place before the living God. Let's start by talking about God's goodness, though, and how we see it in the text. God is good, and um, I'm going to credit the Pocket Dictionary of Ethics, Stan Grenz, the late Stan Grenz, for this simple definition of goodness. It's being morally excellent. That's what goodness is. To be good is to be morally excellent. It's being right before God. Being right in your actions. And goodness is measured by the character of God. We wouldn't know what goodness is except that God exists and God is good. God's not like goodness. God is good. That's how we measure that which is good. We can, uh, just like gravity, you know, we can try and defy it. We can try and do things to undo the, the effect of gravity. But if I jump right now, I'm going to come right back down. It's, it's that's how we measure that sort of thing when it comes scientifically to how gravity works, that kind of thing. I'm not going to explain it because I don't understand it. Somebody else could do that. But goodness is measured by the character of God, and it's a standard that we can't break, basically. Now, this gets compounded in our conversations because sometimes people will talk about how cultures have different values and do different things, and so maybe it's culturally chosen, but I think it's important to distinguish them between values and morals when we have that conversation because all kinds of cultures value things, our own included, that aren't necessarily morally right, but they're values. 
we can value something that's wrong, that doesn't mean it's morally right or wrong if we value something. It's just what we've put forward as, uh, as what we think is right or wrong. Morals are objectively right or wrong and measured against God. They're a different thing. So as many apologists, Christian apologists, have pointed out, in some parts of the world, people love their neighbors. In some parts, they eat their neighbors. They could value that in different parts of the world, but one of those is morally wrong. It doesn't matter if you value it or not. It's wrong. And we measure that which is right and wrong, good and evil, by a good God. That's how we know. So how do we see in the text that God is good and evidence of God's goodness? The first place we see it, we see that God is trustworthy and dependable. Right in the very beginning, talking about walking up to Mount Zion in verse 1, talking about the mountains that surround Jerusalem, that it, God cannot be shaken. That's Mount Zion, and that's where we're going. We see that God is trustworthy and dependable. The, the path that takes us on goodness towards the one who is good is steady and it's sure and we can de depend on that and we can depend on the destination. It's a good image for the solidness and the goodness of God. Jerusalem itself, if you've ever seen pictures or been there, uh, currently where the temple would have been, where the Dome of the Rock is, it's on top of a hill and there are hills all around just like it imagines here in the text. Uh, it's a fortified place where you can see people coming and it's going to be got to get over the hill first before you can get to the next hill. It's a solid place. And there's a sense in, in which scripture often talks about going up to Jerusalem no matter where people go from. Pay attention to that in, the, in scripture when you read about people going to Jerusalem because the whole of that land inclines towards Jerusalem. It's like hiking a mountain in slow motion. You know, you're all, you know you haven't gotten there because you can still feel the incline. It still takes work to go up the hill. God is a sure foundation. God is trustworthy and dependable. If we stay on that path towards him, we'll, we'll feel it. We'll feel that we're on the path for sure. And God is true. He's with us on the path as we go towards him. He's trustworthy and dependable. We know that the destination is worth it. and The destination will be there. So we keep going towards that path. Second thing we can see in the text is that God is just. And here we can go to verse 3. It says, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. The scepter, the rod, the staff, you'll see that in different places it's, that word is translated. We're going to call it the authoritative stick today. That's what it is. It's the, the rod of authority. And obviously, people who shouldn't hold it, hold it. If the wicked hold this scepter. And we can think to ourselves, let's think to ourselves as maybe uh, those who follow Jesus Christ around the world, encounter people who would wield their authority and power wickedly in places like North Korea or Iran uh, or Afghanistan even, we're seeing this. Those who would misuse the authority and power that they have. It's the scepter of the wicked. But if we pay attention to what the passage says, it doesn't just say that the scepter of the wicked will not remain over any land. It says over the land allotted to the righteous. So obviously, there are bad kings in Israel. It's talking about something like that. Or you could expand it out, if we understand it, uh, and talk about within the church, bad popes, pastors who do wrong, church leaders who do things that they ought not do when they claim Christ, but they do wrong. The danger isn't simply those outside, it's that there can be danger inside by those who wield the scepter they're not supposed to wield or hold that authority in a way inappropriate to what it was designed for. 
And the real danger is that if that happened within the allotted land, let's say within the church, then people's, people follow their leaders, and even if they don't follow them, they might say, well, if my leader did this, then I have license to do it too. They might, lives get destroyed, people equate bad behavior of a leader or a group of people as consonant with the character of God. Now, I would suggest to you that every Christian is a leader. If you follow Jesus Christ, people are looking at you to understand what Jesus is like. They're looking at us as a people. They're looking at you if you follow Jesus Christ. And so it begs the question, are we reflecting Jesus Christ that people want to follow and want to see, or are we reflecting a Jesus Christ that people are repulsed by? Are we the good? Are we the upright in heart and our actions? Yeah, the scepter of the wicked will get yielded. Sometimes the name of Christ or God's name will be used in vain to wield power over others, and it ought not, but God is just, and he'll put an end to it. God is just, he'll stop it. And there's more to God's character than just the justice here. For those who walk on that path of faithfulness towards Mount Zion, you can also see that God is generous and forgiving. He's not going to, if we keep looking at this verse 3, he's not going to let the righteous have this scepter either. He keeps us from the temptation to wield a staff that we ought not hold. This is very much like Gandalf not taking the ring when he's offered it or has the chance to take it. This is like, I would, I would actually, uh, this struck me this week, uh, when sometimes we have moments as Christians where we can do something that seems right, but it kind of pendulums the wrong way, like I was thinking prohibition in this country. It was largely a Christian movement, and you can kind of watch, see the walk up if you look historically what's going on in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Lots of public drunkenness, lots of violence on the streets of cities, lots of families' paychecks being wasted at the bar and kids going hungry, a lot of awful things happening. And then the response, I'm not giving a for or against alcohol argument on this, by the way, I'm just simply saying when the scepter was held, all kinds of other bad things happened. And so in our attempt to fix certain problems in the world, sometimes we can unleash a whole lot of other things in the world. God's not going to let us go down that path if we walk towards Mount Zion to our good God. We can see that God as well is the hope of salvation through all of this. He's generous and forgiving. He's just. He's trustworthy. Dependable. If he's all those things, then one day God is going to undo the power of evil and sin in the world. One day God is going to put things to right. Injustice will be gone. What's broken, we were created good in the image of God, but we've been broken by sin. What was broken in the end will be fixed by a good, trustworthy, just, dependable, forgiving, and generous God. And only God can wield the scepter and make it right. Now, there's an interesting set of questions or a simple question that gets thrown out there as well when we talk about the goodness and this whole piece of, Lord, do good to those who are good. 
Um, it's been posed in a couple different ways, but it's this kind of idea of can we be good without God or can we do good without God? Uh, interestingly, um, the new head chaplain at Harvard, who's an atheist, wrote a book about that. Uh, can we be, I can be good without God, basically, is his claim. So can we do good things without God? Which en ends up being a straw man argument when you follow it down. But can you do good things without God? Sure. All of us actually do good things without acknowledging God on a regular basis. Plenty of people who say they don't believe in God do good things. That's actually not the challenge. God made us good. Everything that's good comes from God. We can use those and misuse those. The challenge in question actually is, can you define what is good without God? And there the answer is decidedly no. We can't know what's good without God. Sure, you could do good things, but you couldn't tell me why it's good without God. You need something outside of yourself to define that. And it's interesting, I was, I was reflecting on that and thinking about being good, like the text is saying. If you go to Matthew 7, it'll come up on the screen, 9 and 10. Jesus kind of gives a tip of the hat to this um, idea that we could do good things. In Matthew uh, 7, verse 9, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? And you think to yourself, wow, that's really nice. Yes, yeah, we would do good things. And then he goes on to say this, verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, wait, what now? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him, ask him. Of course we can do good things without acknowledging God. We just wouldn't know they're good without God. It's interesting that Jesus is even talking to the insider crowd here when he says, if you, though, you are evil, you can't be good, ultimately. God made us good. We can't be made right with God without him. And God is going to give every good thing to those who are on that true path through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the issue of becoming good the goodness of god then as the psalm talks about it's done through jesus through jesus god makes us good again here's a slightly longer passage from first peter chapter one verses three through nine you gotta, gotta catch two important things here peter writes praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We can see that the salvation of your souls is at play there through Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is the goodness of God is our inheritance through Christ. And that inheritance that's there, just like the unshakableness of Mount Zion, is something that we can actually begin to experience and appreciate and even enjoy now when we 
would say yes to Jesus Christ, the goodness of God in us. So when that the psalmist prays, Lord, be good to those who are good, we can begin to be those people, those who are good, those who are upright in heart, the inheritance, our salvation. And it's done if you flip over to Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, which is quoting Psalm 45. You can see the scepter language coming. You can see how that's won, that inheritance and that salvation. Verse 8 of Hebrews 1, but about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever, and a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Thanks be to God. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That's what Jesus does. He gets to hold that scepter that we don't get to hold. To bring justice and to make good those who've been fractured by sin in this world. And verse 14 rounds it out by saying, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Those who are being made good again, those who are being made right by the Son, Jesus Christ, inherit salvation. God has made a way to Mount Zion for you and for me. And that salvation is living under the kingship of Jesus Christ in a just, rightly ordered, ruled, rightly ordered world, ruled by God's glory, our blessing and our hope. We begin to experience that blessing and that inheritance even today when we become the good who are good and upright through Jesus Christ. The other thing I want to point out about this, um, being good, is that yes, it's done through Jesus Christ. That's how God makes us good again. We started that way. We've been fractured by sin. And God, the one who holds that scepter of justice, puts us right again. Let us never get puffed up with pride, though, because a good you glorifies a good God. That's what we're doing. We are pointing back to the one who is good by goodness in us. If we do anything less, then we really actually aren't the good who are upright. We're puffed up with our own pride. No, when Jesus begins to remake us by the power of the Holy Spirit, a good, the, a good you glorifies a good God. If we go back to Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you can see Jesus demonstrating this. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. On the path to Mount Zion, everything we do to be remade and good again in the image of God through Jesus Christ needs to point back to Mount Zion to the one who is good. Goodness isn't defined by me and you. We'll mess it up. We don't have the authority or the power to do that. But goodness, as put in us by Jesus Christ, that reflects the one who is good. And that's who we're supposed to be. Sin makes you wrong. God makes you right. Choose right. We have a chance at this point. We're going to go to the table and we have an opportunity pray and confess before our Lord for the areas where we aren't right, where we're wrong with God today, and ask that we would be remade in his image, that the fragrance of Christ would emanate from us, that that which is broken in us would be fixed by Christ, and we could begin to experience the goodness of God, the blessing of his inheritance now. So let's go to the table.